Hello, I'm Stephen Coates, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. If they were a cult, they were a very British cult. They shared their initials and a predilection for arcane symbols, pointy hoods and cloaks with the Ku Klux Klan. But that's where the similarities ended. They thought they were spiritual samurai, rebuilding Britain after the Great War with magical rituals, outdoor living and utopian visions. They were one of our most fascinating and forgotten countercultures. But more on them shortly. And speaking of counterculture, come and join ours, bureauoflostculture.com. You can receive bulletins from the underground, notices of our live events, and lots and lots of stories. Thanks for all the support, reviews, suggestions, and contributions to date, especially most recently from Ronnie, Jimmy, Mags, and John this month. Keep it coming. We appreciate you. Now, the Kindred of the Kibbo Kift was an English camping and hiking organisation founded by John Hargrave after the First World War. It was open to both men and women, young and old, and it attracted the support of a range of high-profile writers, artists and scientists, from Havelock Ellis through D.H. Lawrence to H.G. Wells. In the 1920s, if you'd seen strangely attired groups of people walking in formation along southern England's pagan pathways and through prehistoric stone circles, you might have encountered the kindred. The Kibbokif's practices were wide-ranging, extending across health and handicraft, pacifism and propaganda, myth and magic, education and economics. And these ambitious ideas can be seen in the group's extraordinary, mystical and modernist art, design and crafts. They made ceremonial costumes, graphics, banners and decorated camping gear. They were one of many strange groups and societies that flourished after the Great War. They were rather odd, very countercultural, and would be forgotten without the work of my guest today. He created an exhibition and has written a very beautiful book about them. She is Annabella Pollan, the Professor of History of Art and Design at the University of Brighton. She's not wearing a hood or any occult symbols today, as far as I can tell. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Bella. Thank you for having me. First of all, thank you for sending me this amazing book. It's absolutely gorgeous. And of course, this is radio, so people can't see it. But it's full of the most extraordinary images, which would take many of which are taken by a certain famous photographer we'll come back to a bit later, right? Had his own life in the counterculture. I said a little bit then, but I mean, how do you describe the Kindred Kift? I mean, how on earth do you sum them up? I don't know. Caped crusaders who tried and failed to save the world, perhaps. Um, They were spiritual seekers, social reformers, 
outdoor enthusiasts, amateur artists and designers. They were quite an eclectic bunch, but they were united with um, a belief that the modern world was corrupt. Civilization had run its course. And they, of all people, this eclectic band of about a thousand men and women, mostly in the southeast of England, mostly white collar workers and mostly weekend warriors would be the ones who would create a new world out of the ashes of the old. It's a noble endeavour, right? Yeah, I mean, it's some, of the, some of the beliefs are rather beautiful and certainly the way that they put them into action because they enacted every single one of their beliefs, some of those are incredibly striking. They almost look in photographs like a rock band at a music festival last summer but they were from a hundred years ago (laughs) and some of the ambitions that they had for nothing less than world peace are still the same ambitions that many progressive people would have today their ideas about peace and freedom and their sort of green ideas about the importance of the countryside and some of their mystical ideas a kind of neo-pagan idea about the importance of the ancient English landscape and some of their economic ideas um, about the distribution of wealth. Some of those are things that we might still believe in. Yeah, you mentioned um, progressive there and you mentioned rock festival. And I, I've got to say that if they were at a rock festival, they'd definitely be a prog rock band, given the way that uh, they dress. Like in this, uh, in this um, uh, photograph here, the Cape Crusaders is right, isn't it? Quite extraordinary, really. I mean, y- y- it's... They kind of weren't, and they kind of were a cult, right? I mean, cult for that, for us, sums up all sorts of dark things. And there wasn't that much darkness in them, is there? But they were quite cultish in a strange way, maybe in a positive sense of the word cult, do you think? Well, they have positive aspects, and they have aspects okay. about which we might be really critical, p- political views that have mm. not stood well the test of time. Mm. And also they had a kind of messianic leader. They did. Um, and they that did. is, I think, what makes the accusation of them potentially looking like a cult stands up to Mm. scrutiny in some ways because their leader who was a man called John Hargrave he was a commercial artist and a part-time novelist he was the one who had the vision and who built this organisation but he wanted to be the sole head man he didn't want this organisation that he had founded around 1920 to be one that was um you know, where he could get voted out. He didn't want a democratic organisation. He wanted one where he was the unquestioned head and the visionary leader. The Fuhrer, in fact, one might say, actually, and that becomes relevant a bit later yeah, on. But yeah. I mean, he, he was definitely not believer in democracy. He was a dictator. But before we jump into straight into it, I just wanted to ask you, like, what brought you to it? It was a chance encounter that got me interested in Kibbo Kift in the first place. Um, I had a background in the 90s where I lived in caravans and I went to free festivals and I was a bit of a new age hippie. Um, And I had been part of a world of people who gathered together on Dartmoor and danced naked around stone circles with witches and wizards and weirdos generally. I'd heard of the Woodcraft Folk, which is a children's democratically run outdoor organisation. So it's a sort of after school club and a kind of camping group where boys and girls go off and do outdoor activities. Now, this all just got shelved in the back of my mind. I didn't have any interest in it myself until much later when my daughter was about 10 and I was looking for opportunities for her to make some friends outside of her school group and I remembered Woodcraft Folk. I saw a poster for them 
and I went along to a meeting um, and the children say this creed at the end of the meeting, a kind of like a sort of Scout's Promise type thing, but it was full of archaic language about fellowship and sloth and um, Woodcraft Folk was founded in 1925 and it had seceded out of this group called the Kindred of the Kibbo Kift. Now, yeah, it, was, it was one of the members who kind of broke off yeah, in, yeah. in protest at the dictator. It has very few similarities to the organisation that I later became obsessed with and wrote a book about and did an exhibition about, but it, it has some um, mm. connections with them. And yeah, those words at the time, they meant nothing to me. They were just these curious three words all beginning with K. That struck me in its own way as being very odd. But it's when I saw the imagery, it's mm. when I saw photographs of people in the woods with these strange, broad-shouldered, robotic-type costumes with these sort of medieval jesters outfits and with some of the symbolism that seemed to me as an art history prof to be drawing on an avant-garde tradition that I thought was only known about by, you know, an academic and an artistic elite in the 20s, not by these people who looked like they were former Boy Scouts. They were former Boy Scouts, yeah. So let's let's sort of circle back. So um, I'm just going to read you this. Um, it was part of the great turmoil that happened after the war. With so many millions of adolescents slaughtered, youth was at a premium and it was beginning to develop its own self-consciousness as a separate social grouping as well as making its first attempts to build an ideology. Now, Scouts already existed and was for boys, right? Yeah. And Baden-Powell sort of run it as this kind of pseudo-military operation in some ways, right? And Kibbo Kift was set up in some ways as like counter to that, wasn't it? Counter-culturally yeah. to that. Directly got, so. Yeah, you've got this kind of founder who didn't want to do something which was militaristic. It was, this is much more aimed at peace, wasn't it? Yeah, it was directly influenced by the Boy Scouts because the Boy Scouts in Britain were founded in 1908 and Hargrave joined in 1909. He was a young, eager Boy Scout. He kind of found himself in the Boy Scout movement. He very quickly became a young group leader and he moved up through the ranks of the British Boy Scouts until he was really second in command to Baden-Powell. But his interest was always in the outdoor side of the mm. movement, always in the, the camping and the hiking and the kind of mystic sort of mysticism of the campfire, I suppose. He liked the spiritual elements of it that drew on um, rather kind of generalised Native American traditions as imagined through literature and poetry. He liked the costume of it. He, he did. did. I wanted to read something from your book, actually, which stuck out to me, because it wasn't just the mystical stuff. Long before the words Kibble Kift had been even been used, Hargrave had imagined a group of green-clad youths emblazoned with cryptic insignia, which would put his ambitions into practice. Hargrave admitted that his original attraction to the scouts have been down to the lure of their cowboy hats. He always had an eye on the style, let's put it that yeah, way. Right? Yeah, yeah. So and it was the look of it. The importance of symbolism was always a huge thing to mm. him. He was interested in the way that scouts had all that kind of signs and symbols type tracking and trailing stuff. That was a sort of semi-mystical thing to mm. him, or in fact very mystical as time went on. Um, but even as a boy, he had enjoyed that idea that there was a kind of secret code mm. of the landscape that could be read if you were well-versed in mm. the signs and um, some of those kinds of camp rituals that were done um, you know sort of meeting in a circle singing together dressing up together um, you know some of those things that are now we know informed by terrible kind of 
ideas of cultural appropriation, terrible sort of borrowing. type things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they seemed a kind of noble idea mm. at the time. He was very attracted to that. And once he went off to war, so not in a fighting position, but as a stretcher bearer, and he saw frontline, bloody, disastrous battles and came home invalided out with malaria, but came home a changed man, determined that he wanted to take what he loved about the Scouts, but transform it into something that might be a way to kind of heal the broken world. Here is a sidebar from Bella's book. John Hargrave emphasised the beneficial aspects of Kibbutz's distinctive difference from mainstream organisations and political parties. He celebrated its temerity and imagination in blazing a new trail and dispensing with redundant conventional solutions and approaches. He also managed to turn one of the key obstructions to the group's global ambition, namely its size, into a position of powerful advantage. All this was communicated with characteristic and unwavering authority and aplomb. In a provocative set of rhetorical questions, Hargrave outlined the possible criticism that could be levied that a handful of human beings playing, as it seems, some fantastic make-believe, attired in outlandish costumes, frequently going into the woods and fields to sleep in the open air and calling themselves Kibbo Kift. He stated, What part they hope to play in human affairs is not clear to the ordinary everyday civilians. What can they hope to do? Are they one more of the fantastic semi-mystic brotherhoods which are certain to arise after any great social upheaval? Are they the usual coterie of cranks who believe they have found the way out? How can this mere handful of people, outnumbered a million to one, hope to bring about any real change in human life and development? What power have they? Or are they carried away on the wings of desire into the belief that they can do what governments and institutions are unable to do? What is this Kibbo Kift in a hundred, five hundred, a thousand years from today? Is it sound? Is it anything more than, say, a rather pleasing pastime for those who like to dabble in nature craft and a sort of neo-pantheism? Can it do anything? Can it last? Or is it a tiny half-born thing doomed to expire when its founders pass away? What can anyone do or hope to do in a vast muddled world? So he took many of the scouting ideas that had previously been applied just to young boys and men and he wanted to apply them to adults as well as children, to women as well as men. He wanted to take the parts of the scouts that he loved and mix them with his own kind of political interests and his own avant-garde artistic passions and make this new organisation the kindred of the Kibbo Kift. And I think in a way that's what connects it sort of tangential, as it were, with the kind of heart of the counterculture later, isn't it? Because that combination of nature, mystical things, you know, some, let's call them a cult in the, in the original uh, use of the word, and that vision for a new world order, which was, you know, governed by peace and love. Yeah. I mean, he was totally in accord with that. He would have been possibly very happy in the 60s, apart from the fact that he wanted to tell everybody else what to do. Yeah, and I think he was actually quite austere and Spartan in some of his interests and mm. in his practices. So a key right. fundamental difference would have been that the kind of hedonism and pleasure-seeking of some of those 60s countercultural movements, and not least the drugs, would have been really antithetical. So Kibbo Kift's 
appear to some to be these um, rather kind of wild and free bohemians. But in fact, it was quite a disciplined organisation, lots of structure, lots of rules and a surprising amount of hierarchy. Um, And there was also a kind of need to keep oneself kind of pure and strong because um, bodies and members would be needed to lead the new world. So learning to become physically fit, um, physically, mentally and, um, you know, psychically, that was really part of the programme. So you had to be able to walk long distances, Mm. um, carry a heavy pack, make every aspect of your outfit. You had to learn a lot. You had to kind of keep yourself spiritually and sexually pure. Um, So, you know, it's rather heterosexual and based around conventions of courtship and marriage, which... And encourage people to marry and couple with other members yeah. of the of the group, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that was, in that sense. Yeah, indeed. And that was part of this sort of idea in the beginning about how would this new world be built? How would it be populated? It would be populated by the most beautiful and the most strong and the wisest and cleverest and most capable people in the nation. And they would get together in couples, start families, and their children would be, you know, the those who would bring this new world into being. In the beginning, Hargrave had a very, very long view that this was something that would be achieved over generations. And then he kind of started to speed up his ambitions and think, no, we must bring these things, um, you know, to bear now. And that was partly through the economic circumstances of the 20s and, and various other sort of cultural and political things that were going on at the time. You know, he says the rambling camping and pilgrimages, that's what they call them, isn't it? These, these long hikes as well. They weren't, they were sort of dignified or maybe even spiritualised in some way. You know, yeah, the, definitely, these... because they were not going for a walk. They were not going mm. for a sort of you know, ramble to somewhere pretty to look at a view. They were often to the sort of ancient and sacred sites in England. So, Avebury, Stonehenge, yeah. following the green roads. Yeah, absolutely. He was very interested in ley lines. So yeah. it was there was this sort of sense that they were going and kind of consecrating these sites anew and that they were the bearers of an ancient tradition. And by sort of performing these actions and going to these places, they would animate some kind of ancient spirit that was sort of dormant, you know, some kind of old England that needed awakening. So very much so, they were sort of spiritual practice. In this book that comes out later, The Confession of the Kibbo Kift, which he, he sort of reveals some of the secrets, as it were, uh, but he describes it as a way of life and a method of self-training, a necessary breakaway, a ritualistic exodus from metropolitan standards of civilization, from pavements, sky signs, shops, noise, glitter and smoke. It sounds all right, doesn't it? Well, it sounds lovely, but of course it's riddled with contradictions because mm. the people who are in Kibbo Kift are not um, people who have access to a lot of money. They're not people who are independently wealthy or even, in most cases, highly educated. They're middle-class people who live, usually, in the city, who work in a nine-to-five job. And Hargrave himself earns his coin, if you like, from advertising. He worked as a copywriter and a draftsman because he's actually biting the hand that feeds him. He is sustained by that metropolitan glitter, but he actually uses a lot of strategies from advertising in the organisation, and perhaps that's why their visual image is so compelling. He was so informed by modern methods of propaganda. Yeah, the graphics are amazing, and he he uses propaganda consciously, doesn't he? And yeah. talks about the way that they dress as propaganda, etc. And yeah, so he was he was actually working in the heart of the beast. 
Exactly. Um, and like hopping onto the Metropolitan Line to sort of get to the edges of the city and go go walking at the weekend. All the stuff that you mentioned earlier, you know, this kind of vision of beautiful, strong young people, possibly kind of genetically bred over time. It's amazing, and it's also got some sort of terrible resonances, hasn't it, in yeah. the twenties and thirties, because we know what happened in Germany, and. This was most definitely not a Nazi organisation in any sense at all. But those kind of visions, those ideals become somewhat tarred, haven't they? I mean, they're also very exclusive, I suppose. I mean, what if you're not attractive? What if you're not strong? Yeah. What if, you know, you've got a disability? You know I mean, you're not able to be one of these elite. Then what happens to you then? Yeah, definitely. And that's why I was sort of tempering some of the kinds of early statements about, you know, what we might learn from them. We also need to think about what we might reject and exactly mm. those things. That eugenic ideal of the sort of fit and strong is one that is racist, classist, ableist, you know, and some mm. of those early statements are informed by ideas that were really prevalent at the time and mm. interestingly really prevalent among people who would think of as being very left socialist progressives. But those eugenic ideas were, were very widely held. It was this idea that, um, you know, fitness was mm. beauty and beauty was an index of some kind of moral character. And there were some really distasteful statements about people who were unfit. And the fitness was a form of shaming as well. So people were expected to become fit because unfit people, as they characterised them, were disgusting. Right, um, what, right. They were the weak. They were the people to be yeah. left behind. So yeah. some of those ideas definitely now have echoes with what we know happened later to when those eugenic ideas were taken to their violent extreme in the Nazis but yes of course this is an organisation that predates that and it's based on principles of of peace and ambitions of sort of equality. Yeah, and very left-wing, as we find out later, in yeah. terms of what Kibbekift evolves into. Yeah. He set up this organisation, um, you know, propelled by a vision. There were some notable supporters. Havelock Ellis, he seems to come up a lot in this, this show. Rabindranath Tagore, H.G. Wells, uh, Julian Huxley, and also suffragettes. And I think one of the things which is is very important, it was open to women, and there are lots of notable women involved in it, even though he wouldn't share power with the women um they were actually deeply involved weren't they women were about 50 50 of the membership and it was very unusual in that time for shared camping activities to take place for various reasons including kind of ideas about propriety and um you know sexuality uh, women and men were often segregated boys and girls were segregated in these different camping organizations to have unmarried young men and women camping alongside one another was quite shocking and hargrave and members had very open-minded ideas about things to do with birth control about women's equality they weren't always acted out in the organization those ideas about women's equality because even though there were some quite senior figures many ex-suffragettes in the organization they weren't given any positions of power mm. or very rarely and Hargrave privately had very strong things to say about how women were not equals mm. and he believed in this idea of what he called um, sex polarity, which was really a kind of um, sexual essentialism, a biological essentialism. He believed that men and women had distinct and separate roles and harmony would come from those distinct and separate roles being kind of held in polarity 
and then joined together through marriage. So he had some quite um, conventional ideas about gender and sexuality to our to our eyes today. But of course, not everyone followed his mm. uh, practices. And there were members of the organisation, you know, who discovered homosexual relationships. And there were, um, you know, there were women who took positions of power and there were people who critiqued him. So it wasn't solely that, um, you know, those things that he believed were were sort of put into action. There, there was a kind of critique in the organisation. But definitely that's one of the things that I think is dated about it really badly. Mm. Women were, you know, baking the bread and doing the embroidery on the costumes. Well, I mean, this is a theme which has come up here before as well. You know, the women in the counterculture, well, the, you know, the 60s and 70s, is that, as uh, Jill Drower said, you know, they were supposed to make the brown rice whilst the men did the thinking, sitting yeah. cross-legged. Um, now, let's talk about clothes and symbols and totems and all the other amazing stuff that they made and designed yeah. i mean wacky at times very wacky at times i think but also rather wonderful the graphics are, are amazing actually they were into craft as well yeah. weren't they and uh, and design you know so right at the beginning of becoming a member you had to sign a covenant they were really ambitious as i said nothing less than world peace so it's the reform of education the reform of the economic system a world language world peace but especially interesting was crafts mm. so the economic system was going to be reorientated towards handwork um, redistribution of wealth was going to bring in a leisure society where people would be able to you know spend their time in creative pursuits Hargrave as I said was an artist and a designer but he was not an artist and a designer who had had a conventional training at art school he had learnt from his father and he'd also learnt from observation in nature and he felt that to kind of get back in touch with this kind of ancient as he would have called it primitive mentality to get away from all the kind of chicanery and sophistication of modern life one had to kind of look back to something that was much more basic that was much more about human resilience need and strength so that would mean not buying things from shops but being able to make them yourself being able to make your own tent being able to make your own rucksack make your own everything in fact make your own costume but beyond that because it was an organization that had a message they wanted to impart to recruit they wanted to develop a kind of mystique and they mm. wanted to develop mm. a distinctive identity. So members were encouraged to use symbolism and colour and display um, and cast off all aspects of the, you know, the modern and conventional world. So to join this organisation, you signed up to wearing the costume, to taking a new name, this woodcraft name or totem name, which was often a name from nature, it might be an animal name, or a name from literature, or a name from, from history. Hargreaves' name was White Fox. And there yeah, was, for example, Blue Falcon, old Death mole. Watch Beetle, Old Mole. Yeah, lots of um, quite romantic names, Willow the Wisp. and mm. Yeah, and you had to dress accordingly. You had to kind of make a staff in the shape and um, sign of your totem figure. You had to craft a sort of ritual costume, which would have an embroidered or sometimes painted sigil, so a kind of encrypted... Um, logo or sign on the front 
um, decorate your tent and everything had to be original. It could draw on mythological motifs and modernist motifs were also encouraged. So you get this incredible blend, I think, in their artwork of the ancient and the modern entwined into something new and very surprising. Yeah, there's definitely some deco stuff in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it says the everyday habit of Saxon hood. Jerkin, shorts and long cloak must have seemed outlandish in the English countryside of the early 1920s. Uh, possibly not in if you're walking down Brick Lane, though, uh, which I was at the weekend, and you sort of, you know, there's a sort of Nazgul on one side of you and somebody dressed in a kind of medieval tabard on the other. But, um, uh, but so they must have drawn some ribaldry from the press. And also, I noticed this, the, the costumes included brassiere-type tops for women, G-strings or breech clouts for men. I mean, that was pretty yeah. modern, right? yeah. They had several different outfits, all of which had to be handcrafted, mm. all of which had to kind of carry the sort of necessary decorative symbolism of mm. the movement. Um, exercise costume was right. a kind of, um, that was the breech clout, so a sort of mm. Native American type loincloth or the G-string for men. And for women, yeah, quite um, extraordinary outfits, a kind of brass brassiere in mm. one case, not very functional as a sports bra, but quite um, dramatic looking. There was the camping and hiking outfit, which was all in green. And for men, it involved a jerkin, shorts, knee socks and stout leather shoes. And for women, a one-piece handmade green dress, a brown leather tooled belt and mm. a kind of suede helmet that had something of the sort of Valkyrie mm. about it, according to Hargrave, and always a cloak, a mm. long hooded cloak with a pointed hood that could come down low over the head. When you saw these figures in the landscape, especially when they were hiking in triangular formation, as they sometimes used to do, they had this look of a sort of mystic, occult brotherhood seen from a distance. They would create great mystique, great curiosity. Mm. And the press, you mentioned the press, Partly, they attracted the press through these outfits. And when they had their annual meetings, the all things would be full of mysticism and ritual and spectacular outfits. And the press always came. So there's lots and lots of press coverage mm. of um, the kindred of the Kibbo Kift, far in excess of any power or any change they ever managed to achieve. They got a great deal of press coverage and it was to do with those outfits the exercise costume the camping costume and especially um, in remaining items the ritual costumes which to me are the most extraordinary these are sometimes gold lame covered in mystic symbolism art and modern mystical movements of the popular in the 20s so quite extraordinary to me quite eye-popping still yeah. in the present day. Absolutely. I mean, you, you say, you know, it was not a large movement. I mean, a thousand members in total, a few hundred at any time, right? So we're talking pretty small here, right, actually, but they did garner at the time a lot of attention yeah. because of the way they looked. Just in terms of the the mystical stuff and the occult stuff, you, you, you say there's some connections with Crowley, uh, not massive, but, I mean, there was this... Hargrave sort of shared some certainly some elitist uh, views, didn't he, with uh, Crowley? And maybe you could talk a little bit about their the, the sort of occult rituals and the, and the sort of secret things that went on there. Yeah, I mean, there were different sides to the organisation. There was this public face mm. and there was the covenant that everyone signed. So these were the things that um, were the sort of more respectable side of the organisation, mm. I suppose. And that's what attracted some of these big names from art, literature, mm. science and beyond to support them because these seemed like extremely reasonable principles 
they seem more like something that you know a league of nations mm. might bring in rather than a small group of people in the southeast of england with no money and no power but um that was the kind of public face of the organization but there were sides of the organization that not everyone even in the organization was privy to so hargrave had what he called an eremitical conclave or a sort of secret society of that was made up of seven of them so his closest friends almost disciples if you like and these were people who he'd known for the longest time they were often people who had come out of the scouts with him and were the sort of core of the organization um, this new organization that he founded the kibbo kift and those people had a taboo tent it was all men these seven men would meet in a taboo tent whenever they met in a circle. And this was a privileged space that only the kind of inner circle of Hargrave and his friends could enter. And what went on in that organisation, which was a kind of subgroup, was not always sufficiently clear. It had a very mystical aspect. Anyone who was curious about it was often told, you know, this is not for you. A bit um, Masonic in that sense, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, they drew on... I think it's quite new age in a way. Mm. They drew on a very eclectic, slightly pick and mix mixture of ancient occult ideas, more recent hermetic traditions, um, you know, new religious practices, um, anything that they had found that sort of intrigued them. And they blended it together into um, an, a belief system that was founded on one main principle which was that everything is united right. that there's a kind of single force that runs through everything in the world you know sentient and non-sentient objects from the sort of tiniest atom to the greatest mountain are all made up of this kind of one force this sort of energy or life force so that was a kind of key principle and another aspect of the organization which had an occult dimension was um that they believed you that a successful member, indeed a successful person, would shed the sort of outer carapace of, you know, convention and everyday life and would kind of die and be born again into this new kind of mystical system. Here is a sidebar from Bella's book. Perhaps the most significant of all kin rituals and the most important understanding their uncult lineage is Kibokith's symbolic death and resurrection initiatory rite. To enter the Indembo Lodge, an elaborate preparatory rite of cleansing, binding and blindfolding preceded a symbolic slaughter. The initiate, having been told that he had lost contact with the spiritual world and the very gods who were the playmates of his childhood, was made to perform his adult downfall through a series of symbolical burdens applied by his masked and sackcloth-clad brethren. First dressed with a collar weighted with stones, he was told, much lumber have you accumulated, and your mind is strewn with the disordered litter of many generations of men. Until now, you are bowed down with a yoke of their acquisitions. The initiate's eyes were covered by a black silk blindfold while he was advised. Though you are saddled with the weight of much learning, and the mind is heavy with many theories and facts, yet the blindness of utter ignorance descends upon the inward eye. Finally, the initiate's ears were blocked. You are deaf to the song of life, vibrating through countless millions of years in the unthinkable silence of time and space forever and ever. For you are dying, dying, dying. Once physically bound hand and foot, he was also bound by the following statement. 
Wrap him about in the sacred wrappings of the past, in the ancient conventions wrap him about, enfold him in mythology and theology in the vast labyrinths of mystic and magical creeds and dogmas, encase him, enwrap his mummified remains in the wrappings and bandages of the ancient taboos and traditions of primitive man, in the bindings of the long-forgotten restrictions and constraints of all ancient priestly fraternities and brotherhoods. Bind him, bind him, and wrap and encase him. A death chant of nothing is, nothing becomes, nothing is not, again extracted from Crowley's writings, was cast over the initiate's body to mark his entry into the abyss and his departure from the world. Over his symbolic corpse, the other members of the order were instructed to laugh at him, the atom, the electron of an atom who sought out the path and is now set free, a prisoner in eternity, jeer at him, the pinch of dust who sought out the path, for his is whirled away and caught up on the blasting rays of a million million suns. Of what use this little tangle of bone, flesh, blood and muscle? Of what use this tiny cobweb of cells and nerves, this wretched midget who pretends to be himself? Following this ritual humiliation, the body was symbolically dressed with incense and unguents for the catacombs. After what must have been a terrifying interval for the participant, the spirit was finally called upon to return. The Edem, Hargrave, performed the magical resurrection by breathing life into the corpse's nostrils to the sound of three gong chimes. The bindings and blindfold were removed and the inducted Naganga was ceremonially anointed with a budding branch and sprinkled water and told. Arise, thou twice-born son of the kindred, and live again. Now, most members didn't even know about that. There was a sort of inner order to Kibokif, um, you know, only certain people were party to. And those religious rituals were informed by Crowley's teachings, other sort of things at the time. Theosophical like the- stuff, yeah, exactly, yeah. theosophy. There's a lot of sort of things in the mix. And I guess you could kind of pick and choose from that. But Hargrave was interested in world religion and he expected his members to be so. He expected people to, to meditate, to control their mind, to do yoga, things that were quite, you know, marginal practices mm-hmm. at the time. And again, that's a sort of similarity, I suppose, with the kind of self-realisation of some of the later countercultural movements. But it was not about self-expression and it was not about something selfish. It was about kind of Mm. losing that um, sense of yourself so you could be part of something larger, I think. Well, we mentioned earlier that, you know, rambles became pilgrimages um, and then they had initiations, right? Almost shamanic in a sense. And I wanted to read this, which is, this comes from a little bit later. Wake now the dead, the living dead who stand, waiting for the call that will echo through the land. Green shirts advance, the steadfast and the strong rally to their ranks as the hosts march on. Dead men arise from the catacombs of death, rise from the grave to breathe the living breath. Break now the spell cast by numbers over things, fight for your life to which the spirit clings. I mean, it's great stuff, isn't it? Those death and resurrection rituals, they were something that, informed that kind of belief in sort of casting off the old and becoming these sort of new mm. new figures, new leaders. Mm. 
and certainly informed a lot of the kind of mumming practices. So that was a public side of the organisation where they were interested in folk theatre, um, other kinds of folk dance practices, puppetry. They would reenact these death and resurrection rituals, which are part of kind of ancient mm. English mumming traditions. Mm. So the slaying of summer and so on. He was also evolving, wasn't he, I suppose, yeah. with the times. And I mean, just to sort of paint the picture a little bit of his how autocratic he could be. This is from your book as well. <clears throat> this is, you're quoting him. He's talking about um, the importance of art to developing life skills, which I think most of us would you know, concur with but not necessarily the way he saw it, which was when Winkle, who was one of the uh, kids, uh, said, I can't draw, he's told, people who can't draw, can't write, can't speak, can't act, can't play, can't, in fact, use any effective medium of expression are of little use to us. You've got to draw at least as well as the upper Paleolithic hunters of 10,000 BC. Here you are, a highly civilised human being with boots and collars and trains and wireless, and you tell me you can't draw as well as a Stone Age flint chipper? disgraceful <laughs> that's quite harsh isn't it it is it's yeah attitudes to <laughs> um you know cultivating creativity in children have changed quite <laughs> significantly bit, yeah, yeah. yeah and i think again it's that idea of a sort of cultural elite mm. so it's not only the fit and the strong you mm. know kibbo kift is the name itself is meant to mean mm. proof of strength it comes from an right. ancient um, antiquarian dictionary of Cheshire colloquialisms quite obscure but Kibbo Kift is meant to mean proof of strength you could cultivate that strength you could develop it um, but it was expected to be artistic strength as well so um, many members who were um, kinsmen and women didn't actually come with many artistic skills or any artistic training but mm. they developed them during mm through the organisation it was right. really strongly encouraged so you know on a positive note about the kind of development of artistic skill in a kind of amateur population I think a lot of the artistic production that comes out of Kibbo Kift is made by people who have no training burning so, sigils into into staffs yeah. and things like that yeah I mean and also this is again from your book uh, on the body front you know young kinsmen were expected to be strong potent and well-knit while kin's women should look instinctively for the well-set, broad-shouldered men who can hike and camp and should avoid the weaklings. Yeah. Um, you get this mix, don't you, all the time of quite laudable stuff in terms of creativity or in terms of health um, and sort of, well, quite critical and dictatorial. And that actually, in, in some senses, uh, brings about the divisions uh, in the group, wasn't it? As you mentioned earlier in tw- in 1924, I think it was, wasn't it? That um, Leslie Paul and uh, yeah, others, yeah, there were yeah. sort of half the group left basically in 1924 yeah. over um, a big dispute, which was described in the press as the rift in the kift, and that was right. um, a division really about whether the group should become this kind of autocratic, um, headman-led, you know, John Hargrave-led organisation that followed his every whim unquestioningly, or whether it should be, as many people had imagined it would be at the outset, a democratic organisation with a structure where people could vote on who was in and who was out. And also many of those people were much more reasonable than Hargrave, who was, you know, a wishful thinker at best 
and would make these pronouncements about how there was, you know, 10,000 members when there was barely a thousand at that time, or about all the things that they'd achieved when really they had achieved nothing. He was hoping to bring these things into being by sort of saying them out loud. Fake it if you make, fake it exactly, till you make it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, more reasonable members of the organisation found that embarrassing, mm. thought it was bringing the organisation into disrepute. So that was a big splinter in the organisation where half the membership went and there was a big sort of reorientation about what the what the group was and what it believed after that split. And he himself started to evolve and it's very interesting actually because you see it became an adherent of this idea of social credit which posited a national dividend payable to each and every citizen to rebalance the disparity between wages and prices. It also held that control of finance should be wrested from the bankers who profited unfairly from the current arrangements. I mean, we're not going to disagree with that, are we? Yeah, I mean, that's right? amazing. It's He's, so you know, contemporary it's... relevant, right? Yeah. Crash comes in 29, and obviously that was a massive social shock all the way around. And then he suddenly sort of ditches the costumes and the, a lot of the archaic stuff, and the, the whole group's kind of restyled, as you say, for a harsher decade mm. with berets and green shirts and grey trousers. And it's now called the Green Shirt because Andrew Marr says the rambling stopped and the marching began. Yeah. And so they become a little bit more militant again. They take a part of this political street colour of the 30s marching, meeting, often clashing with the black shirts, interestingly, and the red shirts. It sort of evolves, doesn't it, into this more, slightly more urban, actually. Very like. much so, mm. yeah. So there'd always been this economic redistribution element and there'd always been these huge ambitions, but how that kind of economic redistribution was going to happen through whittling and chanting and meeting under canvas at the weekends and walking to sacred sites, that was never really resolved and from about 1925 Hargrave started to get exposed to these ideas of social credit he began to think that um, this economic element ought to become the cornerstone and he began to orient all the other practices around it and then there became this tension between new members who joined because they were interested in economic reform and people who had joined because they wanted the kind of outdoor life Mm. and they liked being you know purple owl whittling you know a totem in the woods and these things seemed incompatible also Hargrave constantly changing he would dump anyone who disagreed with him he would expel members from the organization he was quite a hard person to get on with so some of his kind of key staff over the years his key personnel dropped away because he fell out with them and by the end of the 20s around the time of the economic crash membership was at an all-time low People weren't joining in the numbers he expected. This idea of becoming a mass movement seemed to be something that wasn't happening exactly. So he asked his membership, what do you think's wrong? In this rare moment of humility, they said, we're too confusing, we're too arcane. People don't understand the costumes. They don't understand the use of old English. You know, they used to say, where's hail? Good health. Mm. When they met in the streets, rather than saying hello, they had all this, you know, sort of baggage of mm. kind of... It starts to become a bit camp and a bit sort yeah, of uh, arch yeah. or something, doesn't it? So he says, OK, we're going to change completely. We're just going to put that economic thing front and centre and social credit is going to become the main thing that we are in 
in support of and that we work towards. So yeah, there was a restyling because costume was always so important. And they kept the green shirts initially with a hood still, but they changed to being a much more sharpened up, slightly paramilitary looking organisation with drums and flags. And they started marching on the streets of London and other big cities. It became much less a kind of mystical woodlands organisation and much more something that was more hardline political and throughout the 30s there were a lot of skirmishes and clashes and the black shirts which were kind of proto-nazis and the red yeah. shirts were communists right and so but then the public order act 1936 in response to i guess to what was happening in germany exactly bans the wearing of uniforms by political groups. Yeah. And uh, it was specifically brought in that act to get black shirts, British Union fascists off the streets. But other shirted organisations, some of whom were merely leisure organisations, <laughs> even children's organisations, um, because spectacle and pageantry and mm. ritual and costume was so central to them communicating a message, without a costume... Who were they? They were just a group of people calling for economic reform. Right. Well, and then obviously the Second World War comes, which yeah. is, you know, massive hole in everything. And they sort of limp on until the early 50s, don't they, really, after that. But it's the sort of the heart and the soul, the spirit, if you like, has kind of gone out of it, isn't it? It's rolled on 20 years and it would have felt a lot more sympathetic response. It's, uh, it's going to the mainstream counterculture. Bella, just to sort of rapidly sort of uh, forward wind there's this sort of strange thing that happens in 1976 which uh, a member of Van der Graaff Generator a, a deeply countercultural band and uh, Maxwell Hutchinson I've never thought of particularly countercultural the bass playing architect president of the RBA they put on this Kibbo Kift rock musical and it's a bit of a hit isn't it a bit of an underground hit a rock opera basically yeah I mean Chris Judge Smith just stumbled across the story mm. of the kindred mm. of the Kibbo Kift he is a very interesting person Person, yeah, one of the founder members of Van de Graaff Generator. He, I think, maybe found Hargrave's book in a second-hand shop or he stumbled mm. across him in the British Library. He was thinking about making a concept album or a rock opera about some aspect of um, English cults because he himself had been a one-time member of Scientology and had kind right. of got yeah. out. <laughs> anyway, when he found Kibbo Kift, he thought, this is ideal. It would fit... The story that he wanted to tell set in the present day in the mid-1970s of a young man who wants to join a cult. He wants to join something called the Love Commune and he tells his parents, you won't understand, I'm going to join this group. Um, they really understand me, I found my purpose. Father, dear father, I'm going away. I'm going to join the Love Commando. It's all been fixed and I leave on Saturday I'm sorry to spring this on you But you know what the movement means to me To set people free I wish you could see the things we do Cause we believe like you In finding out for once Why didn't you come to one of our meetings Then who knows you might understand Father, dear father, no, you don't understand Cause you've not met till our leader If you'd had a voice or she touched you by the hand Then you'd know how I feel now The love commander's so good to be in We're going to win Can't wait to begin, I'll soon be right there in HQ I might see Jill herself every day Will you believe me? If I say that we're all quite sure that we will 
beautiful world Yes, of course I have five minutes No, I'm not in any hurry But please don't try to dissuade me Even though I know you worry about me His father said, actually, son, I would understand, I do understand, because I myself had this experience. And so through his father's sort of retelling, you get all of the sort of story of Kibbo Kift coming out. So it's founding idealism, it's sort of woodland mysticism, it's world peace ambitions, it's changing to becoming a street marching organisation. And then the sort of disillusionment that comes as the father in the 30s drops out and... Um, feels differently about it and uses a lot of Hargrave's original um, lyrics and statements. Christopher Smith didn't think that Hargrave was still alive and then he sort of finds out that he is and sort of meets up and, and they sort of, you know, Hargrave's he's fully behind this musical, isn't he? And not only that, he then takes uh, Christopher Smith to his archive where they've got all this amazing stuff for the costumes and the banners and all the stuff and a lot of the stuff which ends up being in your exhibition and then in your book, right? If you're interested in sort of folk horror and if you're interested in the Wicker Man and William Blake, you know, I think there's a lot of that in there and Arthurian stuff and Druids and, you know, the mystical side of, of, of sort of the, the occult revival, as it were, as we're calling it now, you know, you're going to be all over this. In the context of 20s and 30s, there's all sorts of societies and stuff going on, wasn't there? You know, there's the, um, was it the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry, the British Campfire Girls. And uh, we were talking earlier, maybe we can come back and talk about it some, some other occasion. The, oh, the men's, Men Dress Reform Society, I like the sound of that one, and the White Fang Tribe in Russia. N- uh, nudism and Naturism, you know, which really got going with the English Gymnosophical Society, the British Sunbathers Association. British naturism, I mean, and uh, recently the Great British Takeoff, let's say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing that for an organisation so um, devoted to costume <laughs> that they should be also so interested in its opposites. And uh, it was partly yeah. to do with um, the natural health causes that they were interested in. But yeah, Kibbo Kif definitely overlapped in personnel with members of the Men's Dress Reform Party mm. who were seeking to make brighter, healthier um, more rational clothes for men, but also more flamboyant clothes for men, mm. and um, organisations that sought to get rid of clothing entirely. Some experimental thinking was going on, and where new ideas, I suppose out of the ashes of the Great War, new ideas were being floated and experimented with, and, and sometimes lived through in the 20s, taking an alternative perspective on the world and trying to kind of create something that might be a new way through because the old ways are not working. Also, just to mention as well, um, an important figure, I think Angus McBean, who took a lot of the photographs of uh, the kindred out in the British landscape, you know, at Stonehenge and Avebury and and a lot of the photographs in your book. uh, And of course, he was a member, wasn't he? And uh, married at the time, sort of kept, I don't know if he ever came out as gay, but he was homosexual, wasn't he? So he must have had to keep quiet about that, Ren Hargrave. Uh, And then, of course, he went on to be a, a, you know, very well-known sort of photographer and and artist, didn't he? He photographed amazing photographs of Hollywood stars and and the Beatles, right? He was a photographer for the Beatles, wasn't he, as well? Yeah, I mean, he was a a huge figure in you know, British theatrical history because Mm. he took photographs of all of the sort of British stage stars, um, you know, from mid-century onwards and some of his stuff with this sort of surrealistic um, styling where, you know, decapitated heads and Mm. odd 
sort of bodies in landscapes are really, really interesting. When he was in Kibbo Kifts, he was a very young man. He was working as a shop assistant in Liberty's department store. He was, um, it was through his girlfriend, later wife, that he joined because she was interested in alternative education and um, natural health and some of these things that overlapped with Kibbo Kifts' interests. And yeah, he had his first sexual experience in Kibbo Kifts and he had to come out to Hargrave, who had all these very narrow views about heterosexuality and what men and women should be. You know, he had to sort of tell him, well, he didn't have to, he wanted to tell him. Mm. Um, Yeah, and he was very much in love with several of the members of the organisation. And I think you can see in some of his photos that there's this Mm. sort of strongly homoerotic gaze on the, you know, the bodies of some of his his friends in the organisation. And it's due to his aesthetic vision, I suppose, that, um, you know, Kibbo Kift have left this visual legacy because he ensured that all of the kind of rituals were performed for camera. He had this sense of sort of choreography where he would style groups um, and he would make sure that, you know, figures casting shadows at Stonehenge or naked Mm. on the side of Silbury Hill, you know, he blew these up into these very beautiful, large-scale, softly printed photographs, and he was incredibly accomplished. He really sort of learned his craft, his photographic crafts, in Kibbo Kift as well. So it was at the point that I was writing the book, this kind of single line part of his history. But I think it's a really important part mm. of Angus McBain's story. We know him better for other things, mm. but um, it was where it all began. It's also one of the many things that you write about. And uh, being the prof of history of art and design in University of Brighton, and on that subject, on the same day that your wonderful book on Gibber Kift arrived, your your new book also arrived. Tell us about this. It's more than a snapshot, a visual history of photo wallet. What is it? Well, it's come out as part of a series with Four Corners Books mm. called the Irregular Series. That series covers hidden corners of British visual culture. But sometimes it's about aspects of mass culture that have been disregarded. And I've been very interested for a long time in ordinary people's artistic creativity and amateur photography has been something that I've been really interested in because it's a very accessible, democratic form of visual communication and also visual art. So the kinds of things where you drop your film off at Boots the Chemist or you'd send it off to True Print or another sort of mail order company, you'd get your prints back in the days before digital photography, you'd get them back in one of these kind of paper envelopes. And individually, those paper envelopes are nothing of interest. But when you see a hundred years worth of them, when you see how tastes and styles and Mm -hmm. everyday sort of popular culture has emerged and been mapped through these things, they become very interesting. So about 10 years ago, I started to casually collect these objects because I thought they show us how people learn about what to see how people learn what to take a photograph of they've got explicit instruction on them about how to take a good photograph but they've got implicit instruction about how to hold a camera through the figures that are depicted on the wallets and um, what makes a good and bad subject through the images that are repeated again and again and the images that are excluded so families are always happy the sun's always shining (laughs) Families are always nuclear. The couples are always heterosexual. (laughs) Everyone is white. 
possibly heterosexual but super camp in this this case here Um, they are great actually there's there's a sort of nostalgic vintage thing about them but also they actually had a couple of Proustian moments seeing these remember things must have seen in my granny's drawer you know at some point then so that this is this is Annabella's uh, new book more than a snapshot uh, published by our old friends Four Corners we love what they do and uh, so congratulations on that thank you Annabella thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Culture. You're welcome. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much, Bella. I'll put links in the show notes to her beautiful book, The Kindred of the Kippo Gift, Intellectual Barbarians. It's packed with largely unseen photographs and examples of the group's creative output and an examination of the highways and byways of esoteric thought in the early 20th century. You've got to see it to believe it. It's wonderful. I'll also put a link to that rather wonderful rock opera we mentioned. I spend half my time in Findhorn, in the far north of Scotland. It's home, as I mentioned before, to the UK's oldest alternative community, the Findhorn Foundation, founded in 1961. So I'm quite used to seeing people in peculiar costumes and outlandish garb parading and promenading around making gestures and I've got to say even though I don't live there I do love to see it let's keep counterculture alive and maybe we should ask Bella back for an episode on the history of the British nudist what do you think let us know what you think about this and that and any other of our programmes. It's always great to hear from friends. Bureauoflostculture.com If you're listening to this before June the 1st, 2023, and can be in the mountains of Mid-Wales, join us at the Hay on White Literary Festival on June the 1st. We've got a whole programme of events. If you're listening in the future, or elsewhere, we'll be catching up with you next time on the Bureau of Lost Culture, when we'll have more oral testimonies and tales from the underground to share. Till then, here's the Kibo Kif song from that rock opera of 1976. So An empty clearing in the wood behind the station A fire burning and a slaughtered post stuck in the ground All carved with signs and symbols and the tom-toms loudly
of the wheel thing.